Hello, I'm Miles Kington, and this is the third and final part of Kington's Anatomy of Comedy. In the first part, we looked at the way jokes work. In the second, we saw how character comedy operates, and in both parts, we pretended that it only happens in Britain. So, in this third part, which we've called the geopolitics of jest, we're going to look overseas and back through time and ask far-ranging questions like, "What did the Vikings laugh at?" Well, why don't we ask that? What did the Vikings laugh at? Dr. Alan Fletcher of University College Dublin. The sagas aren't entirely joke-free zones. There's a fellow called Atli in the saga Gerecti Saga, for instance, who coolly observes: "Broad spears are becoming fashionable these days." As he's being stabbed to death with one, you can see why that is funny, but you don't actually laugh, do you? So let's jump up a few centuries and try a medieval joke. Dr. Alan Fletcher again. So this drunk feels a bit the worse for wear, goes to his doctor, and the doctor says the cup is killing you. Ah,、oh, right, says he. If I'd have known that, I'd have drunk from the saucer. That is seven hundred years old. And they say there are too many repeats on Radio Four. Let's hasten on to restoration comedy, the stuff that had them rollicking in the 1660s. We couldn't find an expert to sum up restoration comedy, so here's David Quantic. Most of the plays are about men pretending to be gay so they can have sex with women, and it's one of the first big appearances of really unfunny character names, like Sir Torquil de Swordplay, or you know, a, a prostitute called Madame Prostitutington. It's just sort of really feeble. You know Shakespeare did it a bit, but you know Toby Belch, not a bad name. Hamlet, hilarious. Yes, nowadays of course we've moved on to incredibly sophisticated names in comedy like Bottom and Biggest Dickus and Alan Bustard. But Restoration comedy had an advantage that no other theatre period has ever had. All theatres had just been closed for ten years by Cromwell. Anything would have seemed good after that. I think it was a period when people could at last see entertainment on stage again, after the misery of the closure of the theatres, and people too were getting richer at the time too. It was very interesting. It was a new kind of middle class audience developing, and so as later with, say, Oscar Wilde, people could see themselves on stage, and it really, in a way, caressed their vanities. Professor Terry Dolan of University College Dublin. We're going to do something rather unfair now. We're going to play you a vintage snatch of the funniest man on earth, and you're not going to laugh at all. That's what they called Dan Leno in late Victorian days, and this is what he sounded like in 1901. So, don't laugh. You know, I told the four boys with me, we've been out of work now for over twelve months because they pulled the house down where we used to stand at the corner. It's not the period that was unfunny. There are still books from those times which we do find funny, like Diary of a Nobody and Three Men in a Boat, and both Alice books. But humour in action is different. I once read an entire book of Victorian musical jokes, and only one made me laugh. It was nice, and here it is: It is better to have loved a short man than never to have loved at all. But the others baffled me. Here's a sample: Chase me, girls, for I'm full of rhubarb. What's that all about? Help me, Terry Jones. I think appreciating the humour of the past is difficult, and especially when it's sophisticated humour, because the sophisticated humorous writer tends not to underline his jokes and tends to play off what he knows other people know, and that's what Chaucer's doing. So we have to try and find the furniture that was in people's minds at the time that they read it or or listened to it.
Professor Terry Dolan thinks that props and stereotypes play an important role. Well, I think、uh, comedy is portable. If you have a pompous person, if you have a large lady, if you have a silly man,、uh, if you have a little bit of slapstick as well, if you have some rather foolishness on stage, I think people always respond to that. But if they are too academic、um, in their terms of reference, people will just turn away and won't understand it at all. Why does some comedy last and other comedy wither away? Well, I have a theory about this. It's not my theory, but I can't remember who told it to me, so it's mine now. And it goes like this: When you first encounter the Marx Brothers, you fall immediately for Harpo, all those sight gags and simple movements, and then you pass on to Chico, his piano playing and his fast patter, and finally you wake up to the genius of Groucho and his endless wonderful wisecracks and his wonky walks. But there's one final stage: when you're old and mature, you realise that Harpo was the funny one all along. Well, that's my theory. But everyone's got a theory. Terry Jones has got a theory. I do think that there is a, a tendency for audiences and for people to become familiar with people who make them laugh, and then you know you like to see Morkman Wise, and you think, oh, good, it's Morkman Wise, or oh, great, it's Laurel and Hardy, and that, and and you kind of relax, and they're like old friends coming in, so you you tend to find them funnier and funnier, and and then sometimes you know later on, you, people look back who don't know them and think, well, what, what's funny in that? Jewish American comedian Jackie Mason thinks that all this analysis is wasted, and that comedy never really changes. I think that、uh, you see comedians telling a slow story and getting a big laugh, just as much as they did thirty years ago, and you see slapstick comedians like you did fifty years ago. All these switches and changes of the world are all the product of newspaper men who have nothing else to talk about. We all know that humour varies inside a country; that they can laugh at different things in Yorkshire and in London. So surely the difference between countries will be even greater. Terry Jones is not so sure. It seems to me that humans. Pretty much the same all over the world, you know. Somebody falling over and hitting is there's a certain amount of laughter, fun in that.、Uh, if if it's done in a funny way, or if it has a funny consequence, or if it's the result of something, that you, I don't know. I mean, whether different countries have different types of humour, I, I I would doubt. I mean, I I just think maybe. The kind of humour that they're appreciating at that particular moment in Germany, for instance,、uh, maybe that's just because that's the only kind of humour they're getting. And us and the Americans, I, well, I mean, a lot of the American comedians were English: Bob Hope, Charlie Chaplin, Stan Laurel. They're they're, they're English, so I mean.、Uh, You know, some of the greatest were American. Buster Keaton, he's American. Woody Allen, he's American. And I don't sort of see a big difference. Hmm. I'd find that more convincing if we ever saw German comedy programs on our television, or indeed if we could name just one German, Italian, or Spanish comedian. British comedians have done well in America, but only when the Yanks didn't know they came from here. Rowan Atkinson couldn't get away with it with his one-man show in New York in 1982. A lot of British. Comedians, in particular, have gone to America and to Broadway, in particular, and had a decided lack of success. But generally, it's been because there has been a problem with the export of the humour—that it has a style or it has a content that the Americans don't understand or, or haven't got the time or, or the patience to understand. Foreigners have to change things. So, for instance, the importance of being earnest in France is the importance of being constant.、Uh, they change their earnest to constant, whereas in Wilde's view, earnest meant homosexual. Whereas in the French, constant simply means someone who is constant, someone who is stable. So, it is very interesting how the French would. 
take an, uh, an Anglo-Irish play like that and turn it entirely differently. Um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people used to love to see a sausage on stage in, in English plays, but apparently there's no evidence that anybody else on the continent were craving to see a sausage on the stage. So I think um, each race has its own type of comedy. Terry Dolan. The last time I saw a sausage on stage was in Chris Langham's one-man show at Edinburgh, where he offered half a pound of pork bangers to a lady in the fifth row and said, Freshly opened pack of sausages, madam. I want you to shuffle them, take one, memorise it and return it to the pack. Uh, but I digress, because we're about to embark on a very serious voyage. The voyage to discover if the humour of one country is different from another's. Who is ever delighted the Chinese in the form of crosstalks? The artists always have this immediate audience who responds to what he says or what he, his gestures are. It's very deeply rooted in the Chinese history. That was Dan Dan Shan explaining Chinese crosstalk, which operates, you may need to know, on the same basis as Cockney rhyming slang, that is, linking two concepts but missing out the linguistic bridge. Now, one thing you find in almost every country is that for no logical reason people make jokes about a nearby national minority. The French do Belgian jokes, and the Germans do jokes about the Frieslanders, and Americans, of course, do Polish jokes. And in India, it's the Sikhs who get it in the neck. Farouk Dundi. The Sikh jokes used to be... Very, very similar to the Irish jokes, you know. So you heard of the Sikh saint, he made the lame blind. Uh, and pun, kithe means where in Punjabi. So they said the Khalistani airline would be called Kithe Pacific, not knowing where the Pacific is. You get it? Yeah. yeah it's yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. What's the Khalistani national bird? Tandoori chicken. Mrs. Gandhi was the first Prime Minister ever to appoint a Sikh foreign minister called Swaran Singh. There was a visit by President Nixon, and uh, this plane is coming to land at Delhi Airport. The Swaran Singh and Mrs. Gandhi and the rest of the retinue are standing on the tarmac waiting to welcome him. And as soon as Swaran Singh sees this aeroplane coming down, he starts waving his arms, saying, Oh, Boeing is coming, Boeing is coming, in reference to the aircraft. And Mrs. Gandhi, who's very bossy, uh, she says, be silent. And he said, oh, look, owing is coming, owing is coming. <laughs> because in, Indians have great difficulty getting grips with English pronunciation. <laughs> and this was a joke, obviously concocted by the Hindu middle classes. Aftar Batwa. In Nigeria, there's a lot of laughter and a lot of money. So the Nigerians laugh a lot at people who haven't got any money. There was a famous TV sitcom in the 90s called Basi and Company, and Basi was an imaginative scrounger who we can hear now trying yet again to borrow money from his landlady. Yes, come in if you're handsome and rich. Good morning, madam. Basi, you look humble this morning. Bet you've come to borrow some money. <laughs> madam, just give me a little loan. Just three naira for breakfast. Uh, what if you find me dead of hunger? I'll give you a fitting burial as my tenant. <laughs> I wonder if there's such a thing as a country which has no humour at all. David Quantic. I don't think there is such a thing as a humourless country. I've seen a German film, Goodbye Lenin, which is very sad, but is also a hilarious film, because Germans have a dry sense of humour. Generally, every country that produces movies produces good comedies. There's very few exceptions to this, except, of course, Britain which doesn't make funny films. Professor Dolan. 
I've never had much of a laugh in, in Switzerland, um, I must say, nor have I had much of a laugh um, in Belgium either. One of the nicest things of all is to make an audience laugh, and it's extremely difficult to make a Belgian audience laugh. Now, here's a Belgian joke. The richest man in Belgium, the head of the chip industry, because the Belgians eat lots and lots of chips, the head Belgian chip man gets an audience with the Pope. My son, says the Pope, is there anything I can do for you? Yes, there is, as a matter of fact, says the Belgian chipman. We in Belgium were wondering if you could change the Lord's Prayer. Slightly, just one word. Could you make it, give us this day our daily chips? It's out of the question, says the Pope. There would be a few million francs in it for you, says the Belgian. Unthinkable, says the Pope. Get out of here at once. So he goes back to Belgium and reports his failure to his fellow chip magnates. What I'd really like to know, he says, is how the bakers got to him in the first place. Of course, it's not really a Belgian joke, it's a French joke about the Belgians. It's an Irish joke with a French accent. But Irish jokes have vanished here, and maybe the French aren't allowed to tell jokes like that anymore over there. Maybe political correctness has reached out its clean, latex-glove-clad hands into all corners of the world. Professor Dolan. Well, I think it's hugely significant and probably a good thing, but we can't make fun of disability, as Aristotle and Plato said we could. But I do think it is going too far, because if you make someone completely sacrosanct, it means other people be suspicious of them, and they're not regarded as people who can be of our community. They're regarded as separate and distinct. Here's Jackie Mason. How do you define good taste? When you talk to another person, I say to you, what is there certain things when you're out with people socially that you won't talk about? You could give me a list of a thousand things you won't talk about. You won't talk about malaria, gonorrhea, cancer, tuberculosis. You won't talk if, God forbid, they had an accident. You won't talk about the size of the truck that hit them in the mouth. You There's a lot of things you know you won't talk about. We all are governed by the boundaries of what we consider good taste. And you can't define what good taste is, that you have to be able to feel it. If you can't tell it, then you have a big problem. Comedy, in some respects, is dead now because the essence of comedy is it has to be universal and has to be open, has to be portable. And now there are, if you like, tick, uh, tick off boxes you have to look at before you can put out something on air now. Let's see. Box one, tell another Belgian story. Uh, box two, tell very racist Icelandic story. Oh. Box three, bring on David Quantic. Yes, I think box three is the safest. I really think there's two levels with political correctness. Because on the one level, it is very prevalent in the broadcast media. So there is a level in which political correctness is very powerful in this country. On another level, it also creates a reaction to its imagined existence. A lot of comedy is based on the idea that we do live in a repressive, pseudo-liberal society. And whether we do or not, you know, the popularity of Roy Chubby Brown does rest to a large extent on the belief of his audience that they live in a world where you can't make dubious jokes anymore. Of course, neither of these things are true. But we can't forget political correctness, can we? Or can we? I asked Mark Lamar what he thought. Now it's quite the opposite. Political correctness, which doesn't exist to nearly the degree it did in the 80s, it makes a comic's life a lot easier now. But in the 80s, it was so oppressive. Not because political correctness was bigger, but because... The, the, the comedy circuit was so small, that was your audience. It was just left-wing people, mostly in left-wing clubs, you know, literally in Labour supporters' clubs or working men's clubs. And that, it was very hard, really, really hard. I remember one night at the Red Rose, uh, which is a lovely, lovely club, and um, an astonishingly left-wing audience, which didn't bother me because, you know, I felt exactly the same politically as them. 
but I've got to come and get laughs. You know, that's the whole point. It's just, I say this thing and at the end there's a twist. Come on, it's the twist. That's why you're here for the twist. Don't complain about the twist. And I remember one night, everyone in the audience was white, apart from the one man at the front was black. Uh, which doesn't bother me even slightly in, in real life, but in this particular environment, it was like, if I speak to this man, I know all of you are going to look for something racist, whether there is something racist or not. And there was something unpleasant about it. He, was, he couldn't have been nice to this fella. So, and he ca- wouldn't stop heckling. And I thought, you know what, the whole point of a heckle put-down is to make you feel inadequate and get a laugh at your expense. But I know every time I do it, the audience are going, is that because he's black? No, it's not. Fine. Right, okay. Is that... No. Are you just... No, you're not saying that. So he went on and on and on, and every single time I had to put him down and down and down, uh, and every time I was thinking, please, would you... You don't know what you're doing to me here. So anyway, eventually we got out of the situation, and then I mentioned him, and he, t- he turned to his girlfriend, who happened to be white, and said, um, is he talking to me? And I went, well, of course I'm talking to you, are you... Bl-? And as I said, I went, oh, he's blind. He's blind and black. <laughs> you really left me with no alternatives on this front. It, it was a very hard environment to deal with, with being judged on that the whole time. Everyone, you know, that kind of um, politically correct chip on your shoulder where, OK, you can believe whatever you want, but if I catch you even pretending to believe something else, I'll have you. There was a real element of that, which you don't get anymore. You get it maybe from the press, but you certainly don't get it from an audience anymore. We turn now to Lenny Henry, who was once in the most surreal situation that a black man could ever be in. It was really weird because uh, there was I, 16 years old, and the, to get experience, they put me in the Black and White Minstrel Show, which, for, for those of you who don't know, is uh, a lot of um, white people who put uh, makeup on their face to make them appear to look as if they are black and then singing Stephen Foster songs and anything, really. And uh, at one point, I had to compare the show. So, first of all, it was like something out of Blazing Saddles. First of all, there's all these white people blacked up singing, oh, them golden slippers, and then the real thing coming out and introducing the show. It was very, very strange, and I went through a, a weird um, paradox in my mind for about five years while I was doing that show. But they used to come into my advice. They wanted to be, <laughs> Lenny, how do you do it? Please, just tell me how... How can I be a real black man? I just cannot deal with this. Please tell me and I'll, I'll just try my best to live. Deep down, the thing that comedians most like doing is smuggling bad taste through the customs. David Quantic. If we lived in a world where F words and B words and S words were part of common conversation and BBC announcers used them all the time, then they wouldn't be taboo and there would be less interest in saying them. But because they are taboo, a lot of people enjoy working them into scripts and stories. Spike Milligan, in the 1950s, was very happy because he managed to invent a character called Hugh Jampton, and the BBC never spotted it, and there was a lot of humour of that kind. What was once considered filthy is considered clean today, but the question of what's dirty, that certainly changed. You couldn't say almost anything you see on television now 25 years ago. Nobody ever heard me use that four-letter word that people use as a natural form of conversation today. Used to be a time you couldn't even say a word like that, not only on television, you couldn't even say it in public. If you said that four-letter word in front of a woman, you would find yourself apologizing. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you would apologize for 40 minutes about why that F word slipped out of your mouth. I was sick, I'm sorry, I got a headache, I don't know what made me say it, I forgot you're a girl, I thought you are a horse, I, I don't know what you're doing here, how did you show up, I was looking that way, boy. they don't know what to say. Now when you apologize for saying it, the girl says to you, what the F are you worried about? Jackie Mason. So, what is the worst enemy of comedy? Is it oppression or is it complete freedom? Does comedy wither away when there are no taboos? Does it thrive, odd as it sounds, under a restrictive regime? Terry Jones has the details. 
I think, in a repressive regime that is actually putting a lot of intellectual constraints on what people can talk about and say, it does limit comedies, particularly satire and lampoon, and you, it becomes a dangerous business. Crosstalks would have to be censored before you go to the stage. Each word you are going to say will have to be, you know, examined. Everything is through public media, state media. If nothing the authority considers correct, you can't show it. You have to avoid being sarcastic about the leadership, about the policies, even about the peasants, because intellectuals are not supposed to laugh at peasants. They're supposed to be a classly society. I can't imagine we can live without crosstalks. No. People need a bit of laugh, especially in a society where everything is、uh, tightly controlled. <laughs> Dan Dan Shan on communist China. One of the most controlled regimes in living memory was Hitler's in the 1930s. So, what does David Quantic think of the Nazi cultural scene? In an authoritarian society, humour, like any aspect of culture, is good in two ways only. One is if it's the most banal, saccharine crap. Anyone who's seen Nazi art with all those sort of large-breasted, blonde, tacky chocolate box paintings knows what pictures were like under the Nazis. Nazi music was that soupy, syrupy, fake Strauss rubbish, and I'm sure Nazi comedy, when it wasn't being spectacularly unpleasant, was the same kind. Of course, the other kind of comedy that thrives under an authoritarian regime is the illegal comedy, the satire, which often turns out to be not very funny once the regime has gone. I once read in the Reader's Digest years ago, and I wish I'd taken notes now because I can't remember his name. I once read that in Nazi times there was a very brave German comedian who came on stage in Berlin in the 1930s and raised his arm and said, "Heil, what's his name?" And there was a horrified silence. And then he said, "You know, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the theatre. I saw a big black car, and it wasn't an SS car." At which point the SS rushed on stage and took him away, and he survived the war and even came back again afterwards. And the first thing he said when he came back on stage after the war was, "Well, as I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted, and I wish I could remember his name because he was a brave man, but also stupid, of course, because he seemed to think that satire could change something. Even the ancient Romans who invented satire must have been stupid to believe it would have any effect." Professor Dolan. The Romans really invented nothing at all. The only thing they invented was satire, and so the satirists would come directly from the Roman comic gestures themselves. And the line of satire comes on from Juvenal,、uh, which is. Telling people the truth as they saw it to be true, and they then took on this role in、uh, the open stage、uh, later on. First of all, in Roman drama, and then much, much later in Christian drama. Satire can it actually change anything? Discuss. Terry Jones. Discuss. I don't think it has the power to to change people who who want to do evil who. Who want power, but I think it does have the ability to tell people who oppose them that they're not alone, and to actually sort of form a sort of a, a rallying cry against、uh, oppression. Political comedy is successful when it doesn't so much reflect the mood as anticipate it very slightly. So yeah, the establishment and the satire boom of the 1960s did prefigure the downfall of Macmillan and the changing of the old order, but it didn't change it. It just Reflected in a slightly more amplified way, what people were thinking.
People were ready to hear their Prime Minister mocked for the first time. They were ready to have mild jokes about the Queen. The same way in the 80s. People forget this now, but Spitting Image was the first show that really made cartoon characters out of royalty. There was the famous thing that they were going to do the Queen Mother. And even the Spitting Image people were terrified of this. But now you think nothing of mocking any of the royals. There's no particular taboo to it anymore. But political comedy doesn't change things. The classic example was the Fahrenheit 9-11 thing. Michael Moore genuinely believes that he reduced Bush's vote by his enormous documentary. But he probably didn't particularly, because the public mood in America just said, oh yeah, interesting point, don't agree with you, we're really scared of being killed by terrorists, and so we'll vote for George Bush. I'm sure the booms in satire generally haven't changed things. They've probably followed things, if anything. If every comic had said, don't vote for Thatcher the first time, I would have nothing but praise for it. But when they said, oh, she got in, now let's discuss it. I, I, I think comics are very much followers rather than leaders in that respect. Mark Lamar. We look back now at TW3 and Beyond the Fringe and Spitting Image and we imagine governments quaking in their shoes at this merciless onslaught and we ask Professor Dolan, triumphantly, if comedy could ever bring down a government and he says... No, no chance whatever. Oh. Well, what does the future hold for comedy? In effect, what people want to do now is just film reality and call it a sitcom. The success of something like The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm, which are both real funny, cutting-edge shows, kind of proves that traditional sitcom is considered very outmoded at the moment. So I think there's a real trend towards honesty and brutal realism, which doesn't always go with comedy, because a lot of the best comedy has nothing to do with real life whatsoever. I wish I was sure about all this. The characters in The Office are very ordinary people, yes, but they're very well crafted by very clever writers. You wouldn't get the same effect, surely, by just trusting real ordinary people to come up with the goods, would you? Well, with Big Brother in mind, Professor Dolan thinks that if you chose carefully, you would. But I think the point is they're not ordinary people. They are caricatures of ordinary people. And by being very exaggerated, they are chosen. So I think in some senses they're not ordinary people. The reality is not really real. I'm going to ask a very big question now. If comedy is so important to everyone, what's the chance of getting a leader with a sense of humour? Would a leader who made us laugh actually have an advantage? It would be nice if political leaders were great comics, but I don't think we'd vote for them because we essentially want political leaders to be humourless, fascist robots who will tell us what to do. When politicians have had a sense of humour, their careers have generally been sidelined quite quickly. Essentially, we don't like people to have two jobs. All right, put it another way. Do you remember Bassi and Company, the Nigerian sitcom that we mentioned earlier, the one about the African Del Boy figure? Madam, if, if I die, I'll hunt you. No way, Bassi. Dead men don't bite. <laughs> that was created by none other than Ken Saro Wiwa, the writer and satirist who was executed in 1995 for his opposition to the thuggish Nigerian regime. Now, there was a man who thought that comedy could change things and it only led to his death. Yet we still remember him, and we've forgotten the name of the tyrant who killed him. On the other hand, the tyrant is no doubt still alive, and Ken is dead. So, who wins? Who loses? Who has the last laugh? Well, in this case, at least, it's Ken Sarawiwa. In my culture, we say that to laugh is to show the teeth, and to cry is just the same. So for me, humour is not mere laughter, it is also tragedy. 
And uh, we also have a saying which I think translates into English, many a truth is told in jest. So for me, humor is all life. It is entertainment, it is criticism, it is also anger. All these are expressed through laughter. Kington's Anatomy of Comedy was written and presented by Miles Kington. It was produced by Kevin Gordon and Jonathan Ruffell.